Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week Health. The private sector has the ball and it is the private sector's opportunity in calendar year 2022 to move it down the field with a little bit of a heavier, faster pace than what we've seen over the last, call it five years. It is a put up or shut up moment in time on demonstrating that the uniquely American public-private model can deliver more with less. Thanks for joining us on This Week Health Keynote. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to our keynote show sponsors, Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Press Ganey, Sempris, and Veritas for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Today, we have Anish Chopra with us. Anish is an American executive who served as the first CTO of the United States. He was appointed in 2009 by President Barack Obama and was with the White House through 2012. Chopra previously served as Virginia's Secretary of Technology under Governor Tim Kaine. Chopra was a candidate in 2013 for the Democratic nomination for Lieutenant Governor of Virginia. He is the author of The Innovation State, how new technology can transform government and co-founder and president of Care Journey. Uh, Anisha, welcome. Welcome back to the show. Always great to be with you. You're a good friend. I always look forward to our conversations. They're always informative and fun, and it's just great to catch up with you. You keep a pretty busy schedule. Where I got all that information on you? I actually don't know. <laughs> I uh, I got it from Wikipedia. I was going to make a joke that I, I hacked your medical record, but that would have been a bad joke to start the show since we're going to talk a lot about data and APIs and those kind of things. But no, it's straight off your Wikipedia page. Have you ever seen your page? I have. I have. I don't visit it regularly, but you know, certainly... Uh... After I lost my campaign for lieutenant governor in 2013, that's probably the last time in kind of looking up the profile, but uh, good. It's <laughs> I'm kind of jealous. I, I, that's like a plateau for me. At some point when I get a Wikipedia page, I'll show my parents. Uh, I also found out that you were born in Trenton, New Jersey. What was it like growing up in, in Trenton? My parents were immigrants. And so it was a, a kind of a blue collar town in that way. There was this bridge slogan called Trenton makes the world takes. And it was highlighting a sort of chapter of Trenton's yesteryear where it was a manufacturing hub for the country. And my dad was involved in air conditioning manufacturing and actually has a few patents under his belt. So it was a heyday for manufacturing, which kind of went into the decline of seventies, eighties, nineties. And it's like a shadow of its former self. We moved to the burbs. Uh, and I think that's one of the challenges in the country. When you're in a state of economic decline, you kind of make your way out to the burbs. And we found ourselves actually in a prosperous, highly educated, one of the best school system districts, West Windsor Plainsboro High School. And when you get access to high quality education, your chances in life go through the roof. And so I had great teachers, mentors, guidance counselors. And that really gave me the confidence to move through the economy. And I've been, I've been blessed with a wonderful career. A little bit similar backgrounds, a similar time frame. I grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, when mm. Bethlehem Steel was imploding or just fading away to nothing, really. But there was no burbs to move to. 
But what happened in, in the Lehigh Valley is education took over. There was, yeah. I think, a good like 10 universities in, in, in the Lehigh Valley alone. And, and it was at that time that universities really took off and they became an employment center for the area. And then it became a distribution center yep. for a lot of the Northeast as well. So all these cities trying to find new identities, moving from manufacturing to you know whatever's next, whatever they can find, I guess. Pittsburgh is the best case study. We'll get to that later. Not that it matters, but Pittsburgh transformed from a industrial age, iron, steel, kind of blue collar, if you will. And it's emerged as this computer science centers of excellence, a huge technology base. And it's an amazing story. I'm also a Steeler fan. So I was shedding some tears on Ben's last home game, which I thought was just storybook in the way it ended. But anyway. Probably one year too many for Mr. Roethlisberger, although. Hey, he had a good year. He's all right. He came out his own this year. I, I, I know. He just, I mean, before the year started, all my Steeler fans, uh, and I have a lot of them who live around me, were saying they just didn't think he was going to get them to the playoffs. And I guess proved prophetic. Uh, I, I know people are wondering why I didn't talk to you about the White House or all those other things that you've done, because those are all interesting. And it's really because we've talked about them before on the shows. If people want to hit those, they can hit the profile page on This Week Health and listen to some of those other shows. In fact, we talked about your White House experience and you shared some, some great stories about that. Today, we're going to talk about APIs, open data. We're going to talk about payment reform. We're going to revisit some prior conversations that we have. We're going to check on some progress that's been made over 2022, and we're going to look at what we can expect in 2023. You gave me a, a title for the show and a, a subject line in an email we were trading called Connecting the Dots. I think what we're going to do is you're going to, you're going to play the government. This is what we usually do. You're going to play the government, and I'm going to play the healthcare CIO, and we'll just yes, go sir. back and forth. Where do you want to start? Let's start with where we are at the macro level for the economy, and, and down we'll go into priorities. So- your listeners understand that we are a uniquely American experiment in how to administer healthcare. We're really public-private. Many countries have some degree of public-private, mostly public, a little bit of private. We are really purely, I wouldn't call it 50-50, but by and large, you can do the math, 50% of the revenue on insurance, a great deal of the delivery systems respond to regulatory pressures. So we have a unique role in the global marketplace to prove that a healthcare system can be innovative, agile, problem-solving, life-saving, cost-effective. We can do it all. And I'm an optimist. I'm generally bullish on the American experiment, but we've got work to do because over the last several years, the expectations from the public sector are slightly deviations from where we are in the private sector. And so you'll see some of that in the data and interoperability space thematically during our discussion. But the big picture remains that a system that today costs too much and delivers too little is a quick anecdote that every one of your listeners thinking about why we're struggling in American healthcare starts with. And that could either be in the negative sense that we can't get there or in a hopeful sense that we can do better. And what's the way to get better? We have been basically facing two political camps. One political camp says, give up the American experiment. Medicare for all, let's remove a lot of the private sector economics and healthcare. My good friends, Don Berwick and Rick Gilfillan wrote 
pretty provocative article in Health Affairs, parts one and two. They called it the Medicare Advantage money machine, which is to say the privatization of care delivery in many ways had been hindering our, our progress. So there's one worldview, Bill, where that private public nature of delivery is sort of yesterday's model. We got to move towards a, a single payer. That's one worldview. The other worldview is, no, we can actually fix this and we can make it work. We will need to put points on the board. If you're on camp, public, private, we can make this work. We've been spending about a decade now aspiring to a world where the public-private model can do more with less, but we haven't really demonstrated at scale that it can solve our economic pressures, our competitiveness pressures, our equity and access challenges. So if I say that at the outset, what I mean here is that the private sector has the ball and it is the private sector's opportunity in calendar year 2022 to move it down the field with a little bit of a heavier, faster pace than what we've seen over the last, call it five years. And that's where I would love to spend the bulk of our time today, maybe going into what those aspects are, why, but it is a put up or shut up moment in time, in my opinion, on demonstrating that the uniquely American public-private model can deliver more with less. Yeah, I mean, the, the problems are well-documented and it's an election year, so they'll be documented even further. We'll get to our show in just a minute. As you've probably heard, we've launched a new show, Town Hall, on our community channel, This Week Health Community, and it airs on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'll be taking a back seat to some of these people who are on the front lines. Town Hall is hosted by an array of talented healthcare leaders who are facing today's challenges head on. We're going to hear from professionals and their networks on hot button issues, technical deep dives, and the tactical challenges that healthcare faces. We have some great hosts on this. We have Charles Boise and Angelique Russell, data scientists, Craig Richerfield, Lee Milligan, Reed Steffen, who are all CIOs. We have Jake Lancaster and Brett Oliver, who are CMIOs, and Matt Sickles, a cybersecurity first responder. I'd love to have you listen to these episodes. You can subscribe on our community channel, This Week Health Community, wherever you find and listen to podcasts. Now, let's get to the show. Let me read a little bit of this article. It's about Ashner. So Ashner in New Orleans, and it's EVP value-based care, Dr. David Karamouche have had real success with value-based care. And, and it goes on to note, Ashner was able to have 30,000 capitated Medicare Advantage patients cost $100 million less than comparable 30,000 traditional Medicare patients. Uh, treatment differences for the Medicare Advantage population include uh, patient health risk assessments, in-home visits, outpatient case management, post-acute care utilization management, greater use of primary care. Because Ashner had transitioned so much of his care away from fee-for-service, they changed the way they paid doctors. The primary care doctors were no longer paid based on our views, but instead on performance of their patient panels. Specialists had a portion of their compensation based on value measures, such as clinical variability in unwarranted care. The result, Oshner had its best financial year in 2020, even with decrease in elective patient volume from the COVID pandemic. When I hear that, what is that an example of? We talk about public-private. So that's an example of public-private working. It is. And in fact, while I don't know that particular article, 
it is exactly what we need to see more of shifting from anecdote to at scale. So what are the attributes that you've identified? Number one, you take a physician practice that had largely been born on the fee-for-service system. You heard about the RVU compensation model and you flip it to one that is incentivized to think about total cost of care, whole person care. So step number one, they've moved the incentive model, the economic model of healthcare to the future. In most markets, the volume of lives that will be available for that type of compensation is the minority, the vast minority of the revenue stream. So it's not enough of a signal to change the behavior. What you're hearing in that article is they had, they tipped the scales. More revenue was coming through that total cost of care approach than the traditional fee-for-service. So they were able to rip the Band-Aid and go from RVU-based to something that looks a little bit more rational if you're kind of an efficiency aficionado, which is to say, let's identify the patients that we need to put into more coordination of care programs. Let's maybe see them less on the specialty side, care for them more on the preventive services side, and all the things that I assume embedded in that article will come forward. I'm on the team that wants to find those case studies and to celebrate and scale those results. And to me, a lot of this is transparency. Why would it take this author to write this case study why can't Bill Russell figure out just on his own that there's something happening at auctioner and we need to study why and then reverse engineer it so that we can learn faster? You know, in healthcare, we have this unfortunate 17-year gap from when there's an approved improvement in certain clinical protocols actually scaling nationwide. And in part, it's because we've had such a difficult time tracking and measuring performance because the data sets have all been locked up. They're largely proprietary. We have to take this author's word for it that these results demonstrate. That's not an easy thing for us to independently verify. I I will go back to say in this case it is because now the Medicare Advantage data is public and we'll get into that. But historically, it has not been easy to get this level of transparency to find those wonderful case studies like that auctioner news story you've you've cited. We are going to get into the technology piece of it, but so much of this I find people oversimplify this challenge and they go, well, if we just get the technology right, this all sort of flows together, but it's all of it, isn't it? It's the payment models. It's the business model. That's what creates the complexity around it, not just the data and the quality of the data and the movement of the data. The business model is what drives this. And the commentary for me, and I think this is the headline you've heard from many of your guests, the reason we've limited the returns on investment for interoperability is that the demand for interoperability has been relatively low. And it may seem odd because you and I represent digital health and companies that want to enter into the market, in which case the need for data is great. And so there's a high demand signal from the new sort of entrance. But for the traditional incumbents, interoperability has mostly been a compliance to publish the data out as opposed to a demand signal for business reasons to incorporate data in. The demand signal to bring data in, I hope is gonna grow faster in 2022. And and that's what we want on the dots connecting. Uh, Demand signal for interop will shift from compliance out to value-based care organizations in, and that will hopefully create the virtuous cycle of investments 
iterations to make sure that the interop works. Well, one of the things, and I'm not speaking as a CIO now, because I, I think most CIOs fear what I'm about to say, which is uh, I've always anticipated that eventually we would have a consumer-centric demand for the data that doesn't feel to have materialized in my time in healthcare. Would you say that's accurate at this point? So this is an area where I have struggled to communicate my views, but also kind of how it relates to public policy. I believe, and I think we are currently in a position where the consumer should have the pipes and the rights to access those pipes and that those should be available and working. That's where we are today. We've installed pipes across the health plans, for the most part, at least the government-sponsored plans, and most of the provider network. There are now consumer-facing pipes that are available to work, but the last mile demand signal, my mom and dad are not actively looking to access these pipes. They want to trust others to assist them in making sense of their health information. In that case, me, I'm helping them tap their pipes as a son caring for his parents, but I am of the view that there will be consumer services coming mostly born out of value-based care organizations. I call this the era of health information fiduciaries that will ask the consumer for their trust to organize that information using the pipes built for them in order to help them navigate. I believe Auctioner, in the case example you've referenced, if they could, would build a consumer-facing app to complement the work you've heard them do in that article that has been maybe more enterprise level so far, fixing their comp, getting the physicians organized to do the right thing, their next chapter clearly would be, and again, I can't speak for them, I don't know them, they're not a customer of Care Journey. they would presumably offer a service that could help pay or organize all of their data and help them navigate. That's coming, I just think that the demand signal will come from the trusted fiduciary on the patient's behalf before we have individuals doing it on their own like my mom and dad. I love this because we're playing the role so well, because you are so positive and you are an optimist at heart. And I'm playing the CIO who's sort of been drugged through the mud here a little bit going, yeah. I'm struggling. And I've seen some of these companies, I've seen some of these fiduciaries. And when I talk to them and I interview them, one of the things they struggle with is a business model. Correct. They're like, look, I, I can connect all this stuff. I can pull all this stuff in for you, but you don't really want to pay for it. The health system doesn't want who who. What's the business model to, to get somebody to pay for something? The risk-bearing physician networks like the auctioners that you just outlined, when they achieve the savings that they've achieved, a natural next step for them, I presume, again, I, I don't have any relationships. So I don't know what they're saying, but we're using that as a metaphor for today. I believe that organization, when they get a budget, call it $10,000 a year for Medicare patient, they may invest internally for this sort of consumer data layer because it will assist them in managing the population in a way that they can't today. I'll give you a silly example. If you're measuring quality for a population, the way the rules of the road work are the last blood pressure reading of the year is what's used to determine whether that patient is in control or not. 
what percentage of the time would a Medicare fee-for-service patient end the year with a physician visit in the proverbial auctioner network? If you look at the national data, more than a third might have had their last visit with an out-of-network specialist or independent doctor. And so one of the challenges for these networks is that they have to go retrieve the chart in order to compute whether or not after the fact, the patient was getting high quality and had their blood pressure controlled. In a world where we have the pipes laid and the consumer apps available, you'll see quality as an example, use cases that will help fuel the demand for these technologies. Independent big tech apps that wish to be fiduciaries but aren't tied to a value-based care budget will have a hard time finding payment. That's what we've seen for the last decade. Is it clinical trial revenue? Is it some consumer investment? Might there be uh, sponsorship by a plan or a provider for marketing reasons? Those models have really struggled to scale. To me, it's only the value-based care investment plan that justifies the consumer-focused offering that we're talking about, especially when they are operating in a large PPO open network environment, unlike a Kaiser. Can I tell you what excites me the most about this, this API movement, and the, the bulk fire that we're looking at? It is all the work I was asked to do internally. Hey, build out this clinically integrated network where the, the data flows across and build out all this reporting that we need to, to measure the, the effectiveness of the clinically integrated network. And, and again, in Southern California, and the listeners have heard this a number of times, we had an interesting model. We didn't employ all these physicians. They were all part of a foundation. So they all went out and got their own EHR. And we literally had a spreadsheet of a hundred different EHRs. Now they weren't distinct EHRs, but they were distinct instances. So the data was different. The, the connectivity was different and all that other stuff. And so when they came to me and said, as a CIO, all right, we need to build these dashboards. It was as daunting as it can be. You're looking at, okay, I've got to connect to 55 of these EHRs across 150 physician practices. And now I've got to I've got to bring the data in. I've got to normalize the data in some way and bring it back to meaningful reports that the physicians can act on. That's the part of this, I think, as a CIO, I'm most excited about that, that data layer being set up at this point. This is why I was very eager to chat with you at the beginning of the year. Because if there's anything I would love for today's audience to get, what you've just outlined, the pain of yesterday's data normalization dashboarding layer is poised to flip to turnkey light switch style on or off infrastructure, but it needs your leadership CIO X. Let me explain. We've spent the first part of this interview talking about the consumer. Is there a demand signal? And we've talked about the fact that the pipes exist. This is an important clarifying statement. The pipes that were laid to point to consumer apps were regulated to normalize the data across instances within an EHR and across EHRs. It is why Apple Health, which requires and validates that your pipe normalized the lab records to LOINC, 
normalize the medications list to Rx norm, et cetera. That the codifications meet the standards or you cannot be approved to feed the Apple Health app. In many ways, I jokingly refer that Apple is sort of, is like a real world evidence of government policymaking because on the ground, they will not allow you to connect your health system's pipe to a patient unless it's validated. What I mean by that, Bill, is the CIOs who are listening, when you interact with the EHRs, you're often doing so through their backend databases, which can be competitive and proprietary data models. And so they may speak HL7v2, they may even convert the data to fire, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of unregulated data formats and structures and quality of the data flowing into a warehouse that needs work to normalize. But that pipe that went out to Apple Health is clean. It's like the crude oil turns into whatever the analogy is, the refined oil or whatever that is. And in 2022, thanks to the Cures Act, bipartisan, that single patient pipe to a consumer designated app is now feeding in the same regulated data feed, a population data lake. So if you wanted to extract every single patient's updated records every single night, you simply would run an app, a bulk fire app on top of your regulated bulk fire server which the EHR vendors have to supply no later than December of this year and have to price essentially a net neutrality style model where they can't discriminate based on use case to say, well, this is a more valuable use case, you charge more. This is a more societal good use case, you get to pay less. It's actually normalized to, to true cost and has to be disclosed. So I see in calendar year 2022, the shift from the single pipe to the consumer into this bigger pipe to the data lake as the big technology migration. And it's not gonna just auto magically happen. CIOs, call your EHR vendor and say, when will you ship for me the technology to test this? Because it may become the new, what you previously would have in terms of interface engines, it may be your eight data and analytics replacement for an interface engine, which is the foundation of those sort of dashboards and visualizations, but you need to ask for it. And if you demand that it works, you need to provide feedback that it doesn't scale, it's hitting the production systems, not the, I'll call the, the warehouse systems. All of those operations, we need a growing cadre of CIOs in 2022, testing the regulated big pipes in order to make sure that they work as we enter 2023. Testing the regulated big pipes. All right. So you lost me a little bit there on, on that phrase itself. What am I testing? The, the pipe to the data lake, essentially? Let me describe the regulatory shift. When EHR vendors complied with the patient API requirements, right. they had a few choices. And I think there's lots of variability in what they, what's actually been put in place. Keep your data in your proprietary data model, and then at the transaction query, convert the data to the regulated fire and ship it. Got it. So the backend data lake remains your proprietary data model. And it only converts and ships through that transaction. 
And it's basically a one-time use, one use case pipe, basically. With this requirement, the move to enable population level sort of uh, uh, regulated fire standards, it's really hard for the EHR systems to rely on that architecture, keep the data in a proprietary format, and then in mass convert and then deliver. Right. It realistically means that there likely will be, that's why I'm saying, ask your CIO friends to test this. There will likely be a cached data lake where the data has already been normalized so that okay. it can more easily service the last mile. You follow me? Yeah, we've done this with reporting systems for years. We took the transactional data store and we moved it to a secondary data store so that we could run various queries and stuff on it and not bring down the performance of the transactional system. And, and what the CIOs need to know is the government didn't dictate this level of technical detail. Can you run a population level query on a transactional system? Does it have to be in an operational data store? That's up to the vendor to decide. And as you would imagine, Bill, if they choose one model, not the other, it's not going to work. Yeah. So we need the CIOs to get early testing to demonstrate, hey, is this thing going to even make it out of the game? You mentioned in the auctioner example, what do they say, 100,000 MA lives? If they wanted updates on all 100,000 lives out of their backend Epic system every night, if they have to hit the transactional systems for those differences in patient records, that's going to be a production tax. We don't want that. So I don't know how it's going to work in reality, but I'm saying to the CIOs, ask, test, and give feedback if it's not operationally efficient. Right. Now that makes perfect sense. It's interesting you talked about Apple, but I'm also thinking about things like Truvetta that's out there. And Bingo. even I would think that this is the kind of model that Truvetta would go to its partners and say, this is the way we're going to feed information into the data store. That's right. And I would say anyone looking to build a platform for care delivery transformation would want to seed that platform with the regulated normalized feed, as opposed to taking the transactional systems, the backend data warehouses, and trying to create your own separate feed unregulated. Because then you've got the mess that you described with the 100 instances and everybody's backend is different and you got to normalize it. And did you do it the right way? And you got to double check your math. It's it's too much of a hassle. All right. So Anish, you're going to, you're going to prop me up here again. I'm going to go curmudgeon on you. Uh, so the, one of the challenges with fire USCDI is a very small data set we're talking about. I know it that includes notes. It, it includes notes. Okay. You're describing the Apple health version, which was like maybe seven or eight fire resources, right? That's limited. USCDI is bigger than that, which is to say the version that has to go out by this December with the notes looks a lot more expansive, but keep going with your question because I'm going to tell you why I'm excited about 2023. Well, th that's where I'm going, which is to the extent that we can get more of the information normalized out there, as you say, in a turnkey kind of solution, we're going to get closer and closer to what we've been hoping for, which is a system where we don't spend so much time on the plumbing, but we're now actually working on solutions that are going to impact cost of care, price transparency, and all those things. So here's where I, another reason why I was eager to come on the show today. So number one, by the end of 2023, so a year and change from today, 
every EHR vendor has to essentially export the entire, call it electronic health record designated record set. It's under the term EHI export, which is basically all the other data that's in the backend systems that should belong to the patient. Because we don't have industry consensus on how to open up the entire Epic data model and the entire Cerner data model and the Meditech data model, ONC said, you can choose your own adventure as to the how. So it's not gonna be normalized data, Bill. It's gonna be accessible data, but not normalized. The Biden administration put out an executive order in December, which gives me the happy happies. It says that we're gonna look at the American people and their life experiences, and we're gonna modernize their interaction with the government and perhaps other parts of the economy, including healthcare. There's a section in that executive order on customer experience focused on maternity. And the Biden administration put out a goal. We're gonna assist moms, pregnant moms, to organize their genetic testing, images, like the nice ultrasounds, as well as their EHR records, whatever the traditional lab results and other variables. And we're going to work to bring that data set in a more structured and organized way available to moms via apps they trust. In my opinion, it is an example of the kind of leadership the public-private partnership model of American healthcare desperately needs. Set a goal. If any of your CIOs are excited about opening up with the use case in mind of moms or moms-to-be, let's get a coalition of the willing. Let's go to the Biden administration and say, we, the coalition of the willing, we want these results in 2022, not 2023. Who's with us at putting together all the data for this life experience so that kids born before the end of the year will have all of their records in one digital locker, trusted by their families. We have an opportunity to raise our collective hands. And if any listeners on the show, please email Bill, reach out to me. I'm eager to get this coalition of good energy to kind of move forward with the EHR vendors, with big tech, with app developers, but health systems, physicians, pediatricians, OBGYNs, let's get this coalition moving. It takes an abstract idea that all medical records will be available in digital format upon request nationwide, which may feel daunting to a lot of the vendors into something that is very ambitious, but achievable in the near term. So essentially what we're looking at, you said maternity, are we talking about like every newborn child will have a record starting from birth? Is that what we're looking to populate? That may be how it scales. In the beginning, it's let's demonstrate we can actually aggregate that information, maybe in a few centers that are willing to voluntarily participate with the Biden administration to bring this vision to life. And then once we demonstrate that it's possible, like anything, you can test it, validate that it works, and then through the levers of government, scale. That could mean scaling future versions of meaningful use, whatever we're gonna call USCDI plus, and it could mean scaling CMS's investments and reimbursement policies, payment reform, 
to those very centers. So how it scales will take longer than next calendar year, but a few pockets, auctioner-esque in the news article that you started the conversation with, to say we can do it here on regulated standardized pipes, boy, that would be a lot of fun. Talk to me a little bit about payment reform because another article I read said that fee-for-service, percentage of fee-for-service actually increased last year. I think that's probably due to the pandemic and health systems running towards what they know and what drives revenue for them today in the model. That's not necessarily a direction that's going to be helping, I don't think, drive down the cost of care and improve health equities and those kind of things. So, I mean, is there payment reform that's required to open up this data liquidity? It's going to definitely link to the demand signal. And so now we're getting a little bit of my day job and what, what drives my passion every day of my life now. So CMS launched a really interesting experiment that I want you to pay attention to. It was called the Medicare Direct Contracting Model. Medicare Direct Contracting Model. CMS basically said, look, it's going to take a while for the entire system to move to value. In fact, CMS set the goal that we'll do that by 2030, 100% of Medicare and the majority of Medicaid in value-based care models by 2030. But we're going to create, in the last decade, we had training wheels. So you guys were part of it too in Southern California. You can become an MSSP ACO, one-sided risk. And so as a result of that kind of training wheels model, the demand signal for Interop was there, but there wasn't a lot of capital to unlock it and to drive it. The CIOs, when they sit down with their annual meeting, if that's the thing, with their EHR vendors say, okay, where does value-based care demand signal requirements rank amongst security, digital transformation, advanced analytics? Like you have to be honest with me, Bill, where would you stack rank that if your EHR vendor says you get one new feature next year, where do you put your pennies? It probably wasn't on the population health. But see, that's difference. Again, we were in California. We had moved to about 100,000 managed care lives in Southern California. And so we were moving to this model in a big way. And actually, I, I talked to the CEO of Southern California, and he said that was one of the things that saved them through the pandemic. Having that managed care lives was almost a, a hedge, if you will, against the loss of fee-for-service during, during the pandemic. Well, the, the, let me flip the narrative back to you. The EHR vendors didn't custom build open pipes that were normalized no, and standardized. No, no, no. So what I, when, I, when I describe my point of the demand signal, if you're sitting on Epic and Cerner and Meditech side, and they have a, let's just say we have 500 people in the room representing customer demand. Yeah, it's going to be 5% or less. Thank you. And, and so what I'm saying to you is that demand signal had been faint. With the launch of Medicare direct contracting, we have the potential to scale to millions of lives over the next few years. So it started small. We estimate about half a million lives are enrolled in Medicare direct contracting, where the entire total cost of care budget is in the hands of that physician group. Stable total cost of care, upside 100%, downside 100%. By the way, parenthetically, this is, care, this is my disclosure. Care Journey serves about 65% of those lives through the various direct contracting networks that are in the market today. So we serve a lot. We serve the plurality of the, the networks that are in that market. 
And that's, you know, Clover, Agilon, Village MD, Humana. You can see the list of all the different publicly available. 53 of them went live in 2021. We expect another maybe 75 to go live in 2022. The networks are very focused on interoperability because when you have 100% downside, you want a much more effective real-time data platform so that you could understand what's happening with your members and you could intervene more thoughtfully. So I believe that payment reform option of moving to total cost of care responsibility will grow faster over the coming years than any other portion of the payment system. And I would keep my eyes on that growth curve because if that growth curve uh, hits the targets that I expect the system will hit, we will see a faster turn on the IT side to building out the value-based care, the CRM capability, all the things that you need to be effective in that model will be more of the demand signal coming out of the, you know, to, to the EHR platforms. And the good news is even if they are so busy with compliance on the traditional channel, because they've opened up the APIs, this will be a beautiful use case for those third-party apps that are really focused on enablement of value-based care. You know, one of the things that really has come up over my interviews over the past year has been health systems have put a renewed focus on patient experience. They've always had a, a focus on patient experience on the campus, inside the building and those kinds of things. They have beautiful Wayfinder. buildings. Yeah, Wayfinder was a big application. Right. But now there's the, the whole digital experience and the experience of the patient. I, I find that to be, I'm wondering how much of a driver that is, because I had to care for my parents as they got older and the experience was, uh, and I'm fairly adept. You're fairly adept. It's still bad, but I mean, are we going to see health systems utilize these tools to drive better exper overall experience around health, not just healthcare? So you're raising the biggest question I don't know the answer to. If you look at the 53 organizations that went live in the direct contracting program, the vast majority were physician networks, not health systems. Which means, this is the challenge. Is HCA right? And I'm, I'm not naming them for any, making them as a metaphorical name as the nation's largest health hospital chain. Should they be the most cost-effective supplier of hospital services to someone else's direct contracting network? Or do hospitals wish to manage that full chain? I would say in the Medicare ACO program, it was majority health system led, minority physician led, but the physician led had better results than the hospital led, which in part informs why you saw what you saw with Medicare direct contracting, a doubling down of the physician led taking on more cost of care risk. So in my opinion, the majority of hospitals are either going to become ACO or direct contracting entity friendly and just say, bring your admissions to me and I'll make sure that they get a great experience. But the whole customer satisfaction question is going to be your responsibility to make that seamless and we'll help you. But the grade is going to be for your network's customer satisfaction more so than it will be on the immediacy of my hospital experience as a component. That's the big debate for the industry. 
This is a fantastic conversation. I, I wish we had another hour, but I'm going to hit you up for some advisory stuff here. Who's making the most noise in healthcare right now? Who should we be keeping an eye on? Look, I think you've kind of heard me say it already. The direct contracting entities and the names because they're the, the ones that have the highest volume, the Village MDs, Agilons, the physician network value-based care platforms. And by the way, I would characterize these as those that are in the enhanced MSSP program, like my brothers, Farzad Mostashari at Alade, Sean at Privia, Seth at Evelyn. There are enhanced MSSP physician network enablement companies and these new entrant direct contracting entities. These are sort of two kind of halves of the circle here. That's where I see a lot of the innovation because they're marrying the, the economic model with the, the tech stack for this future delivery system. I'm excited about that. For society, I've been dreaming of the retailers, right? You opened the article with David Carmouche. He's now, I think, at Walmart. I'm dreaming that the retailers will activate their infrastructure to provide some services, even if it's a hybrid digital and in-person experience, to expand access into underserved communities. The sobering fact, Bill, is if you look at the physician clinics in the market today, by and large, they skew a bit closer towards the more economically affluent neighborhoods and a little bit less so on the economically distressed neighborhoods. It's why when you look at the methods, we have the Medicare data license at Care Journey. When we look at the data of who's enrolled in an ACO, you're more likely to be in an affluent neighborhood. The one group that has the lowest ACO penetration rate are dual eligible patients living in economically distressed zip codes. The exact opposite of what you would want society to be focused on because they need the help the most in care coordination and all the other issues. So I am most excited about risk bearing physician networks. And there are many hospital owned but really physician focused. I think your, your predecessors at Providence would be a great example of that. I think UHS, the for-profit hospital chain, they've got very successful network of half a dozen ACOs because they put physician leadership and governance. So I, that's where I think the it's not the technology companies that excite me, it's the physician networks who need to incorporate that technology that give me the most excitement. That's interesting. We covered the Dollar General hiring a chief medical officer. I covered the uh, Walmart, I guess, Cheryl. Oh, Cheryl. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant sharing uh, their vision. And one of the things she noted was the amount of Walmart stores that are in uh, underserved medical areas. And that is one of their missions is to bring care into those facilities to serve those. And that's, that's one of the things I like about you know, people are like, Dollar General, why are you covering that? I'm like, they're in those pockets where we don't really have great health care. I, I pinged him on LinkedIn the minute he got the appointment as chief medical officer. We had the chance to speak shortly thereafter. They have a lot to work on, so I don't know if they're going to get going like yesterday on this issue. But by, good, by golly, if we could get that network as an activated front door, whether it be for activating digital services or in-person testing and other things that combine with digital. I think that hybrid bill of digital with some in-person capability will likely be the formula for underserved access. It's what people call asset-like primary care, if it's possible. I feel like that's got to be part of the mix. Fantastic. 
Thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate it. What a great discussion. If you know someone that might benefit from a channel like this, from these kinds of discussions, go ahead and forward them a note. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. Send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our keynote sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Prescani, Sempris, and Veritas. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.